This movement is not just about showing outrage at the death of African-American George Floyd in the US. The Black Lives Matter movement has unleashed a wave of protests against racism worldwide. George Floyd died after police officers knelt on his neck for several minutes. And some of Floyd's last words, I can't breathe, are now being carried and chanted by protesters around the world. Let's remind ourselves of you know, what's going on here. And these were all prompted by the murder of an American citizen on American soil by an American cop. And you know, the world is watching. After George Floyd was killed by police in Minneapolis, Minnesota, protests for racial justice erupted around the world. The words, I can't breathe, appeared on protest signs in cities from Berlin to Seoul. What made these protests go global so immediately? How has the movement for civil rights always been a global movement? This is State of the World, produced by the World Affairs Council of Connecticut. I'm your host, Amanda Jolly. And on this episode, we're talking with Dr. Brenda Gail Plummer, professor of history at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, author and a foundational scholar in the realm of race and international relations. We'll discuss her latest article in Foreign Affairs, Civil Rights Has Always Been a Global Movement, and explore the long and often underreported history of Black Americans who have shaped U.S. foreign policy and the deep global roots of today's movements for social justice. A special thanks to this episode's partners, the Greater Hartford Links Chapter, Central Connecticut State University Political Science Department, African American Studies, Africana Center, and International Studies Programs. Moderated by Council CEO, Megan Torrey. We are so delighted to have you with us today. It's such a, it's it's always a timely topic, but it seems completely even more poignant this week. So Dr. Plummer, uh, you wrote the article that Amanda referenced before, Civil Rights Has Always Been a Global Movement in June of 2020. Mm-hmm. Since its publishing, protests have swept the nation as uh, and as has backlash to protests. In recent weeks, we've seen voter suppression laws enacted um, and more on the books around the United States. The trial of Derek Chauvin is going on right now. We know that this morning the defense tried to get the, the case acquitted. And on Sunday, a police officer in Minnesota tragically shot and killed 20-year-old Dante Wright during a traffic stop. Can you share with us your perspective? You know, what do these events tell us about where we are today and compared to where we were, you know, in June 2020 when you wrote the article? Uh, well, it seems to me that there have been two major events uh, since June of 2020. One of them is, you know, certainly the uh, presidential election. Um, Another, I believe, uh, that has been critical and may, in fact, be something of a turning point uh, is the January 6th attack on the national capital, which uh, I think in in spite of a sprinkling of uh, people of color present was essentially a white supremacist event. And uh, if we put that in conversation with the voter suppression laws, we see a a, a tragic return uh, to a kind of America that we are hoping to to change. Now, luckily for us, uh, there has been some uh, pushback to all of that. Um, There is some indication uh, that the uh, present uh, uh, presidential administration uh, is more amenable to uh, pursuing 
uh, criminal justice uh, reform. Uh, and there's also an indication that major corporations are behind uh, an effort to uh, get state legislatures uh, to roll back these attempts to keep people uh, from, from voting. Uh, I don't think we can say that uh, there is uh, so much forward movement, but uh, so much as a, a, a back and forth uh, that we are going to have to uh, contend with in the near future. You wrote in that article that global condemnation of racist violence by United States law enforcement is not new, um, but but the extraordinary scale in reach of uh, the reaction to George Floyd's death represents an order of magnitude shift. Can you tell us more about these reactions globally and and Mm -hmm. where did you see protests spread uh, across the world? Mm -hmm. Okay, well... um... I think uh, most of the world's uh, uh, audience that's attentive to what takes place in the United States is already aware of uh, you know, the problem of uh, American racism generally. Um, I think there were a couple of things that triggered the, the George Floyd uh, reaction. Um, one of them is that people all over the world have been under pressure as a result of the pandemic, uh, and as a result of varying governmental responses uh, to it. So it was sort of a, a climate, I think, that was more open to uh, you know, uh, sensitivity and you know, indignation to uh, you know, these kinds of, of abuses. Right. I think there's also uh, in uh, the world community uh, some um, I don't know, bewilderment, we'll call it, over U.S. gun culture um, and uh, the way that you know, this violence you know, seems to repeat itself in the, um, in the United States. Uh, other countries uh, you know, allow their citizens to bear arms, but the United States seems to be the only place where you know, we have uh, you know, uh, almost weekly mass shootings. I think there are also uh, many countries have similar uh, uh, racial issues. Immigrants from Asia and Africa come to European countries just as they come to the United States. Uh, and uh, the, the, some of the, the, the racial uh, conflicts that exist in the United States have something of a counterpart in, in, other, uh, in other countries. I also think that you know part of it is that you know there's always a desire on the part of uh, critics of the United States uh, and the United States' enemies uh, to exploit you know situations which will embarrass the United States. Uh, so there's you know always that element um, you know even after the Cold War we, you know we see that the United States is you know subjected to criticism you know particularly on racial questions. So uh, I think this is why there was a sort of global reaction to, to uh, the George Floyd uh, situation. And part of the international spread is because it you know, reached sensitivities uh, in other countries uh, that also developed uh, Black Lives Matter movements uh, that also uh, experienced uh, conflict between communities of color and the police and, and so on. 
true. I know that uh, Walton, who's joining us, recently worked with the Lynx, our, our local chapter of the Lynx, to present some global Black Lives Matter activists. I know one per, one from the UK and one from Nigeria. So mm-hmm. absolutely true. So let's talk a little bit about historical context in the role of African-Americans um, mm-hmm. in U.S. foreign policy. Um, so, you know, historically, and they've been historically and too often ignored, you write, um, and I want you to talk a little bit about two different narratives. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the international activism of Frederick Douglass? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, as uh, some people may know, the United Kingdom, I don't know if they call themselves that at the time, but Britain, uh, was uh, some 30 years ahead in abolishing slavery than the United States was. And so they provided then an, an audience uh, for uh, anti-slavery sentiment and activism uh, that American abolitionists uh, could hook into. Uh, So Frederick Douglass was among those uh, abolitionists who uh, went to Britain uh, and to Ireland uh, to speak to uh, audiences about uh, slavery in the United States uh, to try to create international pressure on the United States uh, uh, to abolish uh, slavery. So when we talk about African Americans and foreign affairs, uh, we can look back to the uh, anti-slavery movement as one of the first campaigns um, in which uh, you know this kind of uh, of activism was was present. Talk a little bit as well about um, Ida B. Wells. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, uh, after slavery was abolished, uh, African Americans were not out of the woods. Uh, 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 states in which slavery had been, you know, a major part of the economy, and even many northern states passed uh, laws referred to as Jim Crow laws uh, that uh, it subjected African Americans to discriminatory treatment, uh, prevented them from voting, uh, representing themselves in court, so on and so forth. Uh, one a major aspect of this uh, Jim Crow regime was lynching, uh, the extrajudicial, extrajudicial killing of uh, people for, on various pretexts. Right? Uh, so Ida B. Wells, uh, a journalist from Memphis uh, originally, also traveled to Britain uh, to try to arouse British opinion against uh, this practice. Uh, and to have Britons weigh in uh, in an attempt to influence the United States uh, to eliminate it. Let's uh, talk about the civil rights movements in the United States. African-American activists and people of color uh, in the U.S. have used the global stage to advance the cause of civil rights movements in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Um, How have activists used global allies Mm -hmm. Um, and used, as you write, the threat of humiliation on the international stage to hold Mm -hmm. U.S. policymakers accountable? Uh, Well, if we fast forward to the 20th century, uh, one of the things that we find is that um, African-Americans not only uh, uh, make use of uh, international contacts uh, for the purposes of, of, of moral suasion, if you want to call it that, uh, but also to get ideas about how they might deal with uh, the United States at home. So we find, for example, um, that as early as the 1930s, uh, there are African-Americans who go to uh, India 
uh, I'm thinking particularly of the Reverend Howard Thurman here, to uh, network with uh, Mahatma Gandhi, uh, who is noted as uh, not, not only as a Hindu ascetic, uh, but also uh, someone who devised uh, strategies uh, for dealing with uh, getting India out of the British Empire. Uh, Gandhi was an advocate of uh, nonviolent civil disobedience, uh, and he advocated that as a strategy for African-Americans to, uh, to follow. After uh, Gandhi died, uh, we find that uh, members of the India uh, Congress Party, uh, and particularly Nehru and Vijaya Pandit, uh, were uh, also encouraging uh, strategies that had worked in India to be applied to uh, the situation uh, in the United States. Uh, I think in the, about 1959, Martin Luther King uh, goes to uh, India, lays a wreath on uh, Gandhi's grave, right? and uh, uh, he was also committed to the strategy of um, nonviolent uh, uh, civil disobedience. Uh, so uh, we see, in addition to uh, using international ties to attempt to influence the United States, those ties were also used uh, as a way of uh, sort of gathering possibilities for how African-Americans might uh, deal with the situation that they found themselves in. If you are able to provide a historical context um, of the way international, uh, the international community responded to mm -hmm. US civil rights movements in the 50s and 60s, mm -hmm. and are we seeing a similar reaction globally today? Mm -hmm. uh, well, uh, one of the differences between today and then was the Cold War. And so the United States it was in the business of attempting to line up those countries that uh, expressed an interest in not being aligned uh, to, uh, in fact, uh, uh, ally themselves with the Western camp, the Western democracies, uh, against those countries of, of the Warsaw uh, Pact. And so criticism was coming from the United States, not only from its enemies, uh, who were allied with the uh, Soviet Union, but also from potential friends who uh, you know, were very sensitive about uh, this question of, of race. India was one, uh, but we also find that after uh, 1960, there are some 17 new independent African countries. Uh, and American diplomats in those countries found themselves being frequently questioned about uh, race relations in the United States, particularly after, you know, various crises and, you know, events like the Little Rock crisis, for example, or the Birmingham violence in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963. Uh, so the global community was aware and concerned about uh, American conditions, and uh, also very interested in having the United States, uh, you know, ally its uh, ideology with its actual uh, practice on the ground. Um, so I want to bring in also a question, sort of why why do we talk about the civil rights movement as only sort of an American occurrence? You know, are we are we limiting it by not putting it in a broader global context? 
well, it depends on what your what your aim is uh, in in talking about. I mean, there you know there as the card catalog will tell us, <laughs> thousands and thousands of books and articles about the the, the civil rights movement. Um, so uh, you know, uh, putting it into international context is one way of looking at it. I mean, you could look at uh, civil rights insurgency through a very local lens, you know, looking at how it affected a particular town or, or, or state or region, um, or you could look at it in uh, international uh, perspective. Uh, but if you're talking about civil rights in other countries, then you know you have to be uh, aware and uh, you know focused on the specific situations of other countries. Uh, and not uh, simply assume that the same variables or conditions uh, apply that apply in the United States. So you talked a little bit about the uh, the insurrection at the United States Capitol on January 6th. And mm -hmm. so today we see white supremacy threatening African-Americans and people of color across our nation. Mm -hmm. um, as efforts to break down white supremacy continue, are you seeing an increase in solidarity between people of color um, across the nation and around the world? I think uh, it's interesting that you asked this question because we were talking about this in a seminar yesterday. Right? <laughs> um, and uh, I, I think what uh, uh, is happening uh, in, in this country um, is that uh, the uh, sort of precarious middleman position of non-Black people of color uh, is being eroded. One of the ways that the uh, you know the racial system in the United States has been working uh, is that uh, black people have pretty much been the lowest common denominator as far as uh, social status is concerned. Uh, and you have you know other people of color who are not black who sort of occupy an intermediate position, but that position has always been unstable. Uh, because uh, their status you know, uh, often depended on um, uh, immigration and, and citizenship status, uh, or it depended on particular perceptions by uh, white people of what their entitlements were. Uh, uh, for example, uh, in uh, uh, the Southwest, uh, Mexicans were considered white but they were kept in segregated schools. So there was this indeterminacy about the position of non-Black uh, people of color in the United States, right? uh, which was never a comfortable position. Uh, but I think you know, part of the violence against uh, Asian Americans, uh, I think further destabilizes that, uh, as well as um, you know, recent violence against people of, of Latin American descent, uh, and also the, the, the racialization of Muslims. Right? Uh, so I think that uh, these kinds of um, developments, uh, you know, I think, have a, an impact on you know, destabilizing the uh, sort of a tenuous position that these groups often found themselves in. Thank you. So we recently spoke with Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy about his article, uh, a, a new civil rights movement is a foreign policy win. Can you talk to us about how does the outcome of today's civil rights movement and anti-racist efforts impact you, uh, the foreign policy power of the United States? Mm -hmm. 
I think there's a, a seed in there uh, in which the United States could uh, be uh, promoting some change on, on the civil rights front. Um, uh, it's certainly to the advantage of the United States to be seen uh, as uh, you know, attempting to reform is racist institutions. Uh, the problem is that we have been this route before. <laughs> in you know, for example, in 1957, uh, American diplomats found themselves apologizing for Little Rock. In 1963, they were apologizing for for Birmingham. Right. Uh, so what needs to happen uh, is that the reality of uh, institutional, systematic, and systemic racism needs to be addressed. And uh, until very recently, there was you know firm denial on the part of you know some uh, elements uh, in American society that these things were even real. So uh, you know there really has to be some reckoning, I think, as far as this is concerned. So um, we know that institution institutional change can happen gradually, right? So sometimes extremely painfully gradually. Mm. Do you see this as an opportunity for a faster pace of change now than we've seen over the past few decades? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I've actually been very skeptical uh, about this because um, you know uh, we have had uh, you know presidential administrations that were. Uh, interested in reform uh, on this issue. So, for example, um, you know, in the uh, mid '60s, you know, after you know some of these you know uh, globally advertised violent episodes in, in the United States occurred, uh, Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, um, and it uh, appeared to you know, audiences all over the world, well, had, you know, something is happening here. The United States is making some progress. Certain African countries dropped their objections and criticism of the, of the United States because they felt the government was making a sincere effort. But then there was a change of administration. The administration that came in after Johnson's was not terribly interested in enforcing civil rights legislation. Uh, and so we, we get this sort of back and forth, which, you know, you know, leads to these continued cycles of violence, apology, reform, violence, apology, reform. Uh, so to me, it seems that the only thing that is uh, really has the possibility of ensuring any lasting reform is going to be demographic change. Speaking of demographic change, right, we see, you know, sort of diversity in our younger populations in the mm -hmm. United States. Mm -hmm. And you're a professor. Can you tell us about how, how do you deal with these issues in the classroom? What are you hearing from, from, from yeah. your students? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, well, um, the students uh, that I hear from are very uh, upset uh, by uh, the violence in American life uh, and with a, a lot of the irrational <laughs> uh, thinking that has accompanied uh, with the responses to the pandemic. Uh, with the unwillingness of large parts of the public and leadership uh, to deal with, uh, you know, current uh, crises that affect the country. Uh, as far as the uh, demographics are concerned, I think it's you know, important that uh, I think we're up to about 35% now 
of, uh, of Americans are people of color. Uh, and that there are a growing number of states, I don't you know, know offhand how many, but uh, in which uh, no racial ethnic group is in the majority. And we're referred to as uh, majority minority states or minority majority states. Uh, but the point being that, um, you know, I think that it is this that will, you know, that uh, has the potential of changing uh, the situation uh, in the United States. Uh, not, you know, tentative and temporary reform measures followed up by backlashes, right? uh, but rather a growing uh, enfranchised uh, population of people who have a stake in uh, substantive and genuine change. So as we're sort of running out of time um, and we're up to our last question, I want to ask you if you had to sort of make suggestions on on what how we can move forward. What are some nationwide, domestically, some of the most important steps that we can take? Mm -hmm. And what would you tell us as individuals that we can do um, as, as we all try to move forward? Uh, well, it certainly seems to me that laws that facilitate rather than block voting are essential. Uh, I think there should also be some national standards for police training. Um, you know, we have a unified code of military justice. <laughs> um, the, the, the idea, of course, is that police are local forces, but it seems to me that uh, you know, it should not be impossible uh, to impose a certain standards of, of training and deportment on the part of, uh, of uh, police officers. Uh, as far as um, what people can do individually, I think it really is important to vote, uh, and uh, not, not only just in you know for the president, say, uh, but also even in you know local elections, a dog catcher. Right? <laughs> uh, one, one of the problems uh, is you know the erosion of you know the, the civic sphere and uh, you know the sort of marketplace for ideas. Some of this it, it presently can't be helped uh, because, for example. Um, you know, the technological change has uh, led to the decline of newspapers in large parts of the country. Uh, people depend on a lot of dodgy <laughs> online news sources. Uh, but uh, I think you know, maybe part of the, the antidote to this is some form of community in which people uh, can uh, engage in a political discussion. Um, and uh, you know, participate in the electoral process. Dr. Plummer, it was an honor and a pleasure to have you with us today for this extremely important discussion. And I, I, I'm so grateful for you for sharing your insight, your expertise on this issue, and hopefully we can have you back again. Well, thank you so much. That was Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, author and foundational scholar in the realm of race and international relations, Dr. Brenda Gale Plummer. Check out her latest in foreign affairs. Civil rights has always been a global movement. That does it for this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more and to join us for future live events, follow the World Affairs Council of Connecticut on Twitter and Instagram at CTWAC or visit our website at ctwac.org. This episode was moderated by Megan Torrey and produced by Caroline Schaefer at the World Affairs Council of Connecticut. Thank you for joining us for State of the World. Until next time. <laughs>